Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. Just me and Chris, uh, this episode, no guests. What are we doing, Chris? What are we doing? This It's a new movie, right? So we, yeah, a movie that's streaming, uh, either uh, new to streaming, essentially. Uh, what are we going to do this week? Well, uh, it's been a couple weeks, so it's not super new anymore, but I absolutely am glad that we're doing this. I was very skeptical because it's your suggestion, <laughs> and all I knew is that it was a werewolf movie, and I can't remember the last time I enjoyed a werewolf movie, but here we are. You know, talking about The Wolf of Snow Hollow, uh, written and directed and starring Jim Cummings. It's a very indie movie. There's pretty much only recognizable faces in it, made for under $2 million, right? Yeah, like I think he said $1.8 was the actual budget here. That's um, that, that's probably the lowest budget movie we've covered so far on I, Film Trace, I right? I think so, because the rental was probably a lot more like $10 million or something like that. I mean, the Dave Franco right. movie that we whore, sort of indie-ish film we did before. But I was thinking when you said werewolf movie, like, I guess I didn't approach this movie as like a werewolf movie, which is weird. Uh, I just sort of saw that uh, Jim Cummings was doing this new movie. I had never seen Thunder Road. So that we'll dive into it here. Thunder Road was this um, indie flick that he did back in, I want to say 2016, uh, which actually before that was a short that he won uh, the grand uh, jury prize uh, at Sundance for in 2016, the short. And then the feature film came out in 2018. And it was one of those movies and one of those guys that you could not escape. If you were on Twitter or on Reddit, especially, it came up constantly on the subreddits. Uh, Thunder Road's awesome. It's this cool indie movie. You got to check it out. And then Jim Cummings was all over Twitter talking about it constantly. Uh, it got sort of famous because, um, you know, because one, the short did so well and created this massive amount of buzz. But then two, uh, Cummings decided to um, kind of produce the feature length film via Kickstarter to start that fundraising. And they raised like $35,000 through that got his like um, got hit his whatever his mark his target and got all the money. So there was tons of press from that as well. So he's a guy like if you're into film, especially more indie arty film, uh, he's a guy you couldn't really escape the last couple of years. So when I saw that The Wolf of Snow Hollow was coming out and he decided to do a horror movie, I was like, we've got to do this uh, just because I want to dive into what this dude's all about um, and sort of see, is it, I think the biggest thing that came to my mind because of like, almost like this sort of indie cult of personality that has surrounded Thunder Road and Jim Cummings in general is like, is this bullshit? Is this like just people hyping something up uh, or is there meat on the bone? Is there something behind this hype? um that's worth checking out and so that's why i wanted to dive into this movie um did you have you ever seen thunder road did you know all about that sort of background with him winning sundance and as doing the short and it becoming a really successful indie film in 2018 i knew nothing of the sort <laughs> i was completely really? went i went into this completely cold other wow, other than that's crazy. reading very briefly online that it was a werewolf movie and that it was you know a very small indie i had no idea who jim cummings was um, oh my God, yeah, I don't so know. I feel like I usually pay attention to who wins Sundance. I must have been uh, blacked out in 2018, though. Uh, but well, yeah, so I mean, it, it was a short, so it it probably didn't have the same amount of hype as like you know a normal sort of win, right? Right, right. Um, 
But I mean, it was a short and then he turned it into a feature, right? Or is mm-hmm. the whole thing? Yeah, it's, it's short in 16, 2016, you won the grand jury prize. He actually oh, then okay. wrote this movie before he did the feature length version of Thunder Road. He wrote this, like he said, the summer of 2016, he wrote this in like the first draft in like about a week or something, just because he had the idea and just ran with it. Uh, and then he, I think he got the idea later that year to do the feature length of Thunder Road. Um, but that's crazy. You haven't heard about him. I don't know why I feel like I've heard about him a thousand times. Maybe I'm way more on. Well, I think you. you're, I think you're way, yeah, you're way more on Reddit than me. And yeah. he's a, he, that was the, probably one of the more interesting things I found out with my doing my research after watching the film is that he is a very active Redditor. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting question. Did he basically become his own hype machine? And that's what kind of caught everything on fire that combined with the Sundance win, uh, is why, uh, and also the pandemic, I suppose, that gives it a, yeah. a bigger chance. Um, it seems like horror uh, has been one of the few genres to thrive in the age of the pandemic. What with the big drive-in movie yeah. uh, uh, stuff that was going on in the summer anyways. Um, yeah, so let's get, I mean, tell t- tell our listeners, what is this movie about? Especially well, since you're viewing it as summer. not a werewolf movie, <laughs> and I'm doing it. <laughs> I think my one-line letterbox review was Goosebumps for Grownups. <laughs> yeah, but so the basic pl- the basic plot here is a sheriff def- uh, deputy begins to break down from the stress of investigating a series of brutal murders of women in his sleepy ski community. The evidence seems to point to something supernatural, a werewolf attacking and devouring its victims. And it starts out like a very typical sort of monster flick. People start dying. Uh, and you have cops trying to investigate what's happening. What's a little bit different here right off the bat from your typical sort of genre horror film is that, um, well, number one, it's starring Jim Cummings, right? Like the director writer is the star of the movie, which is the same thing that he did in Thunder Road. So already that's a little bit different. Uh, And then the second part of it that comes up right away is it's obviously there's a parallel going on uh, and a very, very strong backstory to the monster part of, um, you know, a single dad trying to raise his daughter, deal with his job, deal with his relationship with his father, uh, deal with his alcoholism. It's all very upfront immediately. Uh, so you get a kind of, um, I think initially it's a little bit jarring if you're walking into this thinking, oh, this is like a monster movie. It is, but it's also kind of an adult drama at the same time about dealing with adult things and things that don't involve werewolves. Uh, And so I think, you know, right off the bat, it's a really interesting uh, film. Um, Even from the trailer, you can tell that it's going to have this sort of um, dual storyline going on with the protagonist and the the person that he's chasing. Um, You you say all this, but I mean, have you said the word comedy yet? Because this is a comedy. Uh, you know, yes, yes, uh, it is a comedy. I guess you would call it a horror comedy. Um, yeah. it's hard though, like, because when people say horror comedy, what it, what else do you think of? It's one of the strangest genres, like the Burbs, which we watched on our dumb movie night, right? Classic. Shaun of the Dead, Shaun of and the I, Dead, right? And I do think there's there's some interesting similarities. Like, uh, I mean, the editing I think of this film is one of the more interesting parts because it's yeah. it's doing a lot of like the clever L cuts that Edgar Wright is famous for, totally. um, but it's also like do, doing it in a, a way that is never really wink wink nudge nudge, but is just like really propelling the film forward. 
and I think it just adds to the energy of it. I will say just before we get into um, the breakdown that this is, uh, I'll, I'll be upfront, uh, a movie that I was really skeptical of in the opening 20 minutes and <laughs> completely won me over by the end of it. I knew, I, I also, one of the reasons I picked this because I knew it would, it would sort of be kind of a little bit of a curveball for you. Because yeah. um, I thought you would be pretty skeptical or critical of it. Um, I don't know why. It just feels like one of those movies that you, you would go after, but it might win you over at the end. Because there is like a propulsiveness and there's an energy and there's a sincerity to this movie yes. that I just don't think that you're going to get in a lot of indie flicks like this. Um, okay, who produced this? You have this whole list of, of films here. Um, yeah. Orient Classics. What are they all about? I, forgot, I sort of forgot about them. Yeah, so this is a really interesting story that I don't think we've touched on. We touched on um, Carol Co. a while back. Yeah. I forget with what film, um, but Orion Classics, as soon as that came up on my screen, it piqued my interest because uh, I had just uh, watched um, The Lodge, which was uh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. the Hammer Films uh, uh, kind of breakthrough comeback. And now we've got Orion Classics coming back. Uh, so it seems like all these 80s uh, logos from our childhoods are <laughs> somehow returning. And I had no idea that Orion had actually been back in the game since 2013 now. Oh, um, no just clue. doing really low key. Uh, they came back in 2013 after a uh, 16 year hiatus with a Christian drama. <laughs> and eventually that led them to, you know, getting hooked up with James Gunn and the Belko experiment. And then eventually the Child's Play remake wow. from last year, which was not that bad. Not that yeah, bad. I haven't I still haven't seen that. But now this year is like their year because they've got this movie plus uh, Bill and Ted face the music, which is probably one of the biggest uh, at home releases yeah. during the pandemic, um, as well as Gretel and Hansel, which I've heard good things about oh, as that's well. Fun. The, that's really fun. Yeah. Movie. Uh, I mean, not fun, but it's funny if you're a horror nerd, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's all right. sort of relative. So you know, I'm, oh, go ahead. I was just saying, I'm glad that this renaissance is happening because Orion was a huge staple of, Massive. I don't know about you, but Massive. our childhoods, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, going back to Caddyshack and First Blood in the early 80s uh, and then going into like doing some really good serious work like Platoon, Platoon and yeah. Mermaids. And uh, and the 90s was just kind of a train wreck for them. They started off strong with the Adams Family, but then, you know, the Stephen King bomb the dark half and the charlie sheen bomb the arrival and then the tupac bomb gang related with jim belushi and then it just ended it was just like this sad whisper of a really successful independent film company uh and so i'm really happy that they're back and they uh, teamed up with vanishing angle films which is a really interesting up-and-comer that is kind of not afraid to both do arty quirky films as well as uh, just like trashy sci-fi. They, they did the new Stargate movie uh, that was direct to streaming. And they also did a really interesting John Hawks movie called Too Late that I want to see, which is um, a series of vignettes uh, featuring John Hawks and it's all one 25 minute one takes um, oh, following his character. Amir and Sam, also a movie I've been wanting to see with Martin Starr as a army veteran um, who falls in love with uh, a Muslim American um, when he returns home. Uh, so like the, the, just like the, the genesis of this movie, you've got Jim Cummings own thing going on, but then yeah. on the production side, you have some really promising stuff from both like this, uh, re resurrection of an old favorite 
as well as this new up and comer. And I feel like you really get the sense of that when you watch the movie. And that's always really fun when that's palpable. And it's not just like a random, you know, money source, but it's clear that like everybody involved really believed in what Cummings wanted to do here. And so you've got the campiness uh, from the old Orion classics, um, but you've also got like this kind of serious dramedy edge to it. Uh, yeah. From the more arty side. And you wouldn't think that those two things would mesh well together. And I think that's maybe why I was skeptical in the first act of the film. Totally. They really pull it off. Yeah, it's a really tough balance to make. And I think with the Orion stuff, too, I think what's interesting in my tweet, I said, or I think generally people would call this movie indie. But I don't know if Jim Cummings would call it indie. Because Mm. I think in one of the interviews, he said that, like, this is my first big studio film. Uh, So despite the fact that it's a $1.8 million budget here, Orion's considered somewhat of an actual you know major studio on some level obviously with its history so it's i mean that's the first question i'll just throw out there just talking about the production side um you know with a 1.8 million dollar budget what do we call this do we call this a micro budget do we call this an indie do we call this just kind of like a blumhouse type you know i don't know what would you call it yeah i don't know i feel like micro budget is typically reserved for under a million Mm -hmm. oh it, in, in, I mean, it's all terminology, so it's all, you know, ambiguous um, at best. But uh, it really like there is something about this movie that I can see without having seen Thunder Road or read any of his previous work um, where Cummings is coming from, um, especially if you are kind of a, you know, a lifelong avid movie person, because yeah. like I can I'm, I was trying to like put myself in the shoes like he's mid 30s like us yeah. and he gets to do he gets like two million almost two million dollars plus he gets Robert Forrester to play Which his is dad insane and you've got you know recognizable character actors from American Vandal uh love that guy by the way Jimmy Chetro um and uh, Ricky Lindholm who's become a great character av- actor over the past decade which is great uh so like he's got a solid group of people behind him and yeah some of them are still rookies some of them are more seasoned but like especially just like looking at the movie, like it's got such an excellent sheen to it without it really feeling anywhere near overproduced. And it still doesn't feel like super raw either. No, it doesn't feel, well, I think that that kind of, one of the things that came up in almost every single positive interview was the cinematography. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's shot by Natalie Kingston. They all called her out. I don't know if that's like a PR thing or like literally (laughs) in every paragraph. They're like the cinematography by uh, by Natalie Kingston was amazing. They're really like. um, And so she's she did a lot of music videos. uh, Julia Stone Break, which is a a really awesome video they've never seen before. Billie Eilish, Bitches Broken Hearts. Um, And then she shot a movie called Last Bayou in 2019 that won the best cinematography at the New Orleans Film Festival. Um, So, yeah, there's. It, that, that's the one thing while I'm watching this that the style of it um, definitely feels like an indie on some level. It feels um, there's a slight, I don't know if I would say amateurish. There's just almost like a lower budget feel to some of it, um, but it never is distracting, I don't think. Uh, no. And it never really feels overdone, I'll tell you that much. Um, that's very, I don't know, I find that that's incredibly hard to pull off. Like, I think there's a lot of people who think you have a high def camera and like that's all you need and you just point and shoot in a house or whatever. There's a lot of shots in here that seemed very, very difficult. 
Um, so there was a lot of hard work and, and technical know-how that went into this. Even at one point eight billion, at one point eight million dollars, um, they did a ton with that money, like a ton to make this horror movie, I think, shine in a lot of different ways. Um, let's dive into conception. How did he conceive of this of this um, movie? Uh, he comes back to this line over and over again in a lot of his interviews that I've, I've watched. He basically wanted to do Zodiac as a comedy. Uh, David Fincher's sort of famous serial killer uh, master. Would you call it a masterpiece, Zodiac? Yeah, people, let's, let's call it that. Even I'm though not, you know what, I'm not going to call Zodiac a masterpiece. I don't uh, believe that yeah. it is. I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's a, ma- a masterpiece at all. Um, I think it's you know I think it's a great film and it's really fascinating and it's a great mood work. Um, but the story of that movie, I don't know. It, this is not. I would say this among the Reddit film people, it is 100 a masterpiece. Like there's <laughs> yeah, not yeah, a yeah. week that goes by that someone doesn't post on movie our movies and say zodiac's like one of the best movies ever i can't believe it blah blah, blah. and then it's like a thousand <laughs> upvotes and like a thousand uh yeah, and i've read all see, of these this is all that i do I if, if, if you're spending your time doing that it might it might sour the the source <laughs> for although you. i have rewatched zodiac a couple of times okay so he says this line he loves and he goes he kind of gushes about this is jim cummings the writer director and star he gushes about David Fincher a lot uh, and also Hitchcock specifically with this film. Um, and that's what I find that very fascinating because, and maybe I, I, I don't see it. I just, when I'm watching this film, I don't think Fincher and I don't think Hitchcock. Um, yeah. I think more like Coen brothers would be like a, a touch point that seems a little bit more apt to me than would you consider this Zodiac as a comedy? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I feel I keep wanting to go back to the Edgar Wright comparison because that's mm-hmm. the vibe I was continually 100%. getting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's hard to compare to Fincher, obviously, because he's he's kind of doing a complete upending of that. If you want to compare it at all, um, and I mean, it, 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 in in some ways, it makes sense as far as a genesis of like, uh, you know, basically somebody trying to uncover this madness and they really never succeed or you know, we won't get into spoilers, but uh, it's it's very clearly this uh, this enigma that completely destroys the protagonist. And it's done in a very clinical way. I will say that, like, it seems like yeah. Cummings aspires to the the clinical precision that Fincher does. And I'd say one thing that uh, I don't know about you, but I've, I think the one thing that soured me on Zodiac in my early viewings of it is that it just felt so amorphous and like just overly long. But with yeah. every viewing, it seems it, it feels like the, the puzzle pieces come together more. And you and there's there's no issues with that. Like this is the most like it's one of the best uh, examples of economic filmmaking I've seen in a while. This yeah. uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow. It's a tight 82. Is that right? Yeah. It's, it's like impressive. Like the, that he, he, he doesn't waste a, a minute with it. Um, I mean, I'd be interested to see on a second watch if that first act still bothers me or not. But um, I don't know. I find it interesting because like with this new season of Film Trace that we've put together, yeah. uh, this is honestly the first movie I've enjoyed. That well, that's also another reason why I picked it because we have yeah. like discussed what, what are the new movies we've done? The um, Trial of Chicago 7. Tri- it was Okay. Be- you be Halloween. Trial Chicago Seven was not good. I held back on that episode. I held back a lot. Like yeah, I did I not want to create conflict. Um, I hated that. I just despised that movie. Um, and 
Well, but and then my big the thing I despised the most was our season opener, The Devil All the Time. And, I kind of liked it. Ugh, kind gosh, of really damn. enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> but I think that's I think both of these are interesting uh, comparisons because yeah. the the big one of the biggest complaints for me for both of those movies, not Hubie Halloween. Forget that. Yeah. Um, though I guess there's some there's some that kind was of for the audience. Connection. That was for the, that was for the clicks. Come on. <laughs> but the the thing that frustrated me the most about a lot of movies in 2020, actually, um, but especially with Devil All the Time and Trial of Chicago 7, is that there's just this extreme overthinking involved. And one yeah. of the most refreshing things I, I've read in the interviews with Cummings, um, both in your notes and outside of it, is that he, he keeps coming back to basically this nugget of an idea. And I think this is one yeah. of your questions that you put on our Twitter, which is the question of genre filmmaking totally, right yeah mm-hmm. and i at that i mean clearly if we're horror geeks doing this podcast um but we also really love movies of all genres and varieties i think that's the in that's the biggest success here is that he's able to pick like you said earlier those pieces of like dramatic uh father-daughter relationship alcoholism and then just filter it through this very specific like slim goosebumps for grown-ups filter and it it works because he's he's focused he doesn't have to put the enormity of a huge societal historical event like sorkin did or doesn't have to like put you know 400 pages and 70 years of storyline from a novel like devil all the time did there's just like it's it's smart it's it's keep it simple stupid personified yeah, I mean, that, and that relates to a lot of different, like, you know, I'm thinking about making a song, right? Like, mm. the best songs that I make are always, like, one stupid riff. And then I was like, that's cool. And you build on that. Uh, or one fun riff. And, like, it's it, it's funny you say that because, like, he, in almost most of his interviews, are like, how did you get, how did you start this movie? Which is, you know, another cool thing about picking this movie is because Jim Cummings is so open about his process it's like really easy to dive into all of these conception and production because he talks about it kind of uh, constantly and is very open about the production budget, who we shot with, how we did, how he did it, how he wrote this. Um, it's all out there in the open. And the thing that he sort of um, says often about the conception of this film was it's, it started with the ending. It started with uh, a Hitchcock shot that he had in his head in the end. And then he mm. built the entire film from that one single shot um, so it definitely goes back to that sort of simplicity and keep it simple, stupid kind of concept uh, is if you have something that you're really into. And I think this is true of the creative process across the board. It's always sort of mysterious. You know, you have something that you like, just run with it and see yeah. where it goes. And that's why I think he wrote this in five days, at least the first draft. He said he was basically manic and just had to finish it and had to get it done. <laughs> and I think that like you can kind of feel that passion in the movie there is a, a propulsive element to it that I think comes through in the writing. He did talk about five films that he thought uh, inspired this uh, Zodiac. We already mentioned the burbs I mentioned earlier, but I think that's kind of like a cornerstone of horror comedy um, from the 80s. And we, we had a friend group rewatch of this recently, and that it was really interesting to watch that movie in comparison to now what watch Wolf of Snow Hollow in comparison to that recent rewatch of the burbs, because yeah. one of the things that kept coming up while we were doing our rewatch of the burbs was that it just like, it felt like a hangout comedy, totally, right? Totally. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's really impressive that he was able to, in this movie, 
do that economic storytelling and have it be so plot driven with the mystery of the wolf um, that's terrorizing this town, but then also make it feel like we're just there with the characters. And I think maybe that's where some of the Coen brothers uh, connections come. But I also think that that's where you're kind of setting yourself up for disappointment because I feel like that was also one of the main points of a lot of the negative reviews, right? Is that, um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to ape Coen brothers, then you have to, you're, you know, you, you're, you're missing a whole bunch of the dimensions that they bring to that kind of subtle, uh, you know, version of ultra violence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think he was trying for that at all. I didn't, I didn't know. Like, he's I not a, no, like I the burbs, yeah. like Wolf of Snow Hollow is not about subtlety. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. And I, I can see, I can see elements of the Zodiac a little bit. I can see the burbs. King the Hill, I thought was funny that he threw that in yes. there. It was like a good hangout comedy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, I could sort of see that. Um, maybe even more like Super Troopers for some reason to me comes to mind. Um, <laughs> sure. The Silence of the Lambs, I thought was an interesting sort of throw here. Um, I didn't really, I don't know. It's, I, this is the thing that, that intrigues me most about this movie is that often when someone makes a horror film, like, and let's compare it to the rental. The rental I thought was, I don't think you liked it very much. I thought that there I'm was not. a lot. No, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was a little so. eager there. Yeah. <laughs> right. I thought that there was a lot of promise there and the way that it was shot and the way that it was constructed. Um, but I would call the rental very much a first film debut with someone with a lot of connections who has a good cinematographer and a decent amount of budget here, probably $10 million, $12 million or something. It had that indie, almost A24 sheen to it. Right. Um, and this does not have that at all, I don't think. It has a sheen to it, but it's definitely right. an almost like a workmanlike or craftsman sort of level of sheen to it, where he's clearly um, just, you know, stood bent over his computer or whatever, editing this thing incessantly for probably months. And it has that sort of um, craftsman feel to it. Um, when you, and when you're trying to compare that to sort of like genre work in general, a lot of genre work can be fun and light, but it always kind of feels a little shoddy. And I think mm-hmm. genre work is usually a term meant for a film that is not, you know, not a tier, not top shelf, not top drawer, um, kind of like middle shelf or kind of on the bottom. If it's like B grade, yeah. where would you slot this in? Because it's not really like the rental where it's that sheen of a 24 or bleaker street or anything neon films mm-hmm. or anything like that. Right. Um, but it's also not the shoddy thing that you would see like a trauma film or like anything like that, or like a sci-fi original. Right. It's kind of in a weird no man's land. Um, and I, I think, think that that's, that's a just, good thing. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the interesting comparisons um, because he mentions uh, in an interview with inverse um, how he kind of looked up to his hometown heroes from new Orleans, the Diplos brothers. Yeah. And if you compare that to the rental, Dave Franco got hooked up with Joe Swanberg, right? And so basically you're you're seeing two 2020 horror movies inspired by Mumblecore, um, but not either of them being humble Mumblecore themselves, right? Yeah. And so, and like I think you put it well, like the sheen of the rental feels like it's trying to do something bigger than what it is, which is was one of my main issues with it. Is like <laughs> if they wanted to like embrace the b-movie-ness of it they should have just 
gone with it more, but they yeah. decided to play it straight and go with like the relationship drama and then have that fall out from the bottom and just focus on the killer. And it just felt like a disjointed mess to me. Um, but done with very elegant precision. Um, yeah. But here, uh, the thing that makes the Wolf of Snow Hollow special, I think, is that it's trying to still feel like it's all about the relationships and and yet also be true to that B-movie essence. Like, it's yeah. never taking itself too seriously. Yeah, that's a really good point. It does kind of have a foot in both worlds. Right. Um, which is, I think, incredibly hard to do. Like, I think yeah. that's like a real feat to sort of balance that. Um, but I, I, I want to say that, uh, once again, to bring up Robert Forster, is like he's the king of both B-movies yeah. as well as like bringing a lot of heft and weight to a role. Yeah. Like, there's a reason that everybody thought that it was inspired that Tarantino, you know, hired him opposite Pam Greer for Jackie Brown because you have two B-movie actors doing something elevated, but still in the style of the B-movie, right? Totally. And and so Robert Forrester feels very comfortable in this kind of role, especially because he took over the role of the sheriff in the third season of Twin Peaks. And so then he like fits in this world of Snow Hollow just really effortlessly. And it was, uh, I was actually, it was, it's kind of weird. I was kind of touched when the movie was dedicated to Forrester at the end, even though I kind of knew like, oh yeah, he just died. So this makes sense that this is kind of his swan song. And it's a really, I don't know. I think it's a really awesome way to do a send off for a guy that, um, uh, was, was a craftsman, a workman in the field, but also like was rightfully recognized as somebody of uh of great depth um in his latter years it's like yeah there's that high art low art thing going on yeah um which is yeah it's it's an it's a hard balancing act i mean the one thing that we do have to talk about in terms of the production and stuff like that before we get to more of the release and how people are viewing this movie it, it, is jim cummings being in the lead yes right <laughs> how have you and you haven't seen thunder road so you can't really compare it to that um, the, my, I don't know the, my first thought on that, when I see him, uh, part of the campaign with Thunder Road and him being out front and all that kind of stuff and him being in this movie and casting himself again, and a question I have, is he egomaniac? Is that why he's doing that? Does he have to be in front of the screen? Yeah. Do you is, get it, that intention or that feeling from him being this movie and starting this movie? I think, I think time will have to tell with that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, because of what he said in regards to that, um, he seems to be the kind of guy that, uh, and he said this, that, you know, he wanted to save time, he wanted to save money. And so he just w- decided to, you know, cut the bullshit and take care of the lead role. And on one hand, it's like, okay, that makes sense on like a logistical, pragmatic level, and you almost admire it. But also, it's like, you could have, you know, you could have cast yourself in a supporting role. Like, is there what's going on here that's that makes a writer director want to do that? But I also do think there's a big difference between a, say, Mel Gibson or Woody Allen versus somebody like Jim Cummings that's doing this in his first two movies and then yet still saying uh, pretty clearly uh, in one of his quotes from Inverse, I just had never had access to better actors. If Jake Gyllenhaal comes knocking on my door tomorrow or Sam Rockwell or Shia LaBeouf, that would be a different story. I wouldn't have to do it anymore. End quote. So 
you know, with this being maybe his sophomore hit, uh, if he gets the attention of bigger names, will he stay true to his word or will he continue to kind of maybe feed an ego that I think is probably (laughs) within it's within everybody, but it's definitely probably within filmmakers to some degree. Without a doubt. Yeah, it, it is really hard to tell. I think on the one hand, yeah, I think the reason why he does it, it's definitely easier for him to do. And he said that multiple times. It's easier for him to step in, like especially doing like the the monologues in Thunder Road and just rehearse them like a thousand times and just step in front of the camera and do it uh, as opposed to trying to teach someone else uh, else how to do it. Um, mm-hmm. I do think there's definitely some ego involved without a doubt. I think more it's about control. And that like he as the writer has a super specific vision. And I don't think he trusts other people with that vision necessarily in that lead role. Uh, it's like his baby and he wants to really protect it. And I think that's why he steps in front of the camera to do that. Um, and I think that'll have diminishing returns. I don't think that's going to work on his third feature. Yeah. You know, I, just, I, mean, I don't, it's not going, there's no way. I was struggling to think of like a director that was in their that cast themselves in the lead role in their opening films and then stepped away from that. But I mean, probably one of the biggest examples is Spike Lee. Like he yeah. played an iconic role in Do the Right Thing. And I can't imagine anybody else in the role of Mookie. And yet, you know, as soon as he could get Wesley Snipes or get Denzel, then he's like, I'm just going to chill behind the camera. I hope that Cummings tries that. I really do. Yeah, I think that he will. I think that he, yeah, I think that he understands that like he's doing this. He feels like he's doing it out of necessity. And maybe he's just a little bit reluctant to let go of control a bit. Um, but I think I think he'll sort of get it and step behind the camera. He's not even he says this to it. He's not even a trained actor. Right? He's like he's never taken acting classes or anything. I don't think I think he studied film at Emerson. Um, but he's no, I don't think he wants to be an actor. So I think he wants to be like a writer, producer, director type. Right. Um, what do critics think about this thing? Yeah, this was interesting to see. Uh, I, I felt like because it towed that line between B-movie and something bigger than that, uh, that this would be more maligned. But it got really good reviews on Rotten Tomato. Uh, it's all critics reviews, 89%, 73 out of 100 actual score. Top critics, 83%, 73 out of 100 actual score. I mean, you're more of a Rotten Tomatoes uh, analyst than me, <laughs> but when's the last time a horror comedy got this high i'd have to imagine it'd be something like Shaun of the dead yeah like this is pretty rare it's rare for horror to get good scores anyways i think probably the the rival this year would be invisible man uh Mm -hmm. for kind of these scores but they're very high horror comedy is super almost never happens where it gets a a high score it's another reason why i picked this film because i was like oh critics are really into this there's something here that's that's worth picking at and diving into the metacritic was kind of glow though 67 i don't know yeah what it what is the the uh What's the what, what what's what is what's accounting for the difference there? I don't know. Well, see, the actual score. I always go with the actual score on Rotten Tomatoes because it's a little bit more accurate. Because it's like, okay, like f- the fresh score is just the percentage of fresh. It's not the actual ratings that the critics gave it, right? So there's yeah. a difference there. Um, I get the feeling that, and if you read a lot of the reviews, it's like three out of four, not four out of four. So hmm. most critics liked it. Um, but they didn't necessarily love it or gush over it. I think that's why I see a 67%. I think it's also kind of when you see a lower RT audience score, uh, which is at a 73%, which I think is kind of low. IMDb is at 62, which I feel is very low for a movie like this. Uh, Letterboxd is at 68. That's pretty good. Uh, That's kind of in the high decent to to good range. 
Um, and then the audience, Metacritic audience score, there's not that many with 71, but kind of falls in line with the IMDb and in, in Metacritic overall score. I, I, I just get the impression that I think if an audience member goes into this thinking it's a horror movie, it's about werewolves, and that's their main focus going into it, there's yeah. a likelihood that they're going to be disappointed because it's true, too comedic. True. It's true dramatic. There's too much personal backstory about alcoholism and dealing with a daughter and uh, an ex-wife and all this sort of stuff that like in a father, there's almost too much plot and emotion for a normal horror film. So I think a lot of traditional horror fans saw that someone like this wasn't that scary. Um, you kind of have to love the genre and ha- have fun with it in order to enjoy this movie. And I think you're just like a hardcore like gore fan or werewolf fan. You're not going to like this movie that much. Yes. Yes. True. And I do think that maybe my my gl- my kind of glowing review of it is not only because we've been reviewing such uh, mediocre or bad movies so far this season, <laughs> but also just uh, I had the night before watched uh, The Lodge, which yeah. I did not like, um, but uh, which was a gr- you, you mentioned this idea of like backstory and character development. And like, there's so little of that in The Lodge that I, I feel like perhaps I was just like, bit like thirsty for it and and yeah. it just completely delivered and i just think like there's a certain wavelength here that you have to be on oh, to appreciate it yeah and, and if you're not on that wavelength then i get it like it's and that maybe that's another reason that it's admirable is that he like he he knows he's not making a movie for everybody uh he's, well, he's making it for the kind of people that want to see a comedic version of zodiac it's a nerd movie and like he's a nerd like if you listen to i watched an hour-long interview with him and i was like this guy he doesn't look like a nerd but you listen to him talk i was like this guy's super into all of this stuff like to the point where it's kind of embarrassing um he's like in that level of obsession about filmmaking and and doing his own thing and telling stories and stuff like that and i think that that translates over into the film very well if you are like that too Mm-hmm. um like if you're not on that like you said if you're not on that wavelength it might be a little bit jarring um and what I want, i'm interested too about the success of this movie because of being in the pandemic and stuff like that cost 1.8 to make essentially two-ish how are they going to recoup their money it did pretty well it, I mean, it, it opened in theaters but it only did about two hundred thousand dollars because no theaters are open no one wants to die right um right. And so it did pretty well on the home charts. Um, DEG uh, watched the home chart, which we talked a lot about on the sort of later episodes of the Wildline podcast. Uh, that's like a, a an amalgamation of all these different rentals and EST and stuff like that. So it's a pretty good barometer of how a film's doing on home streaming. Uh, it was started out at 15th, jumped to the 13th uh, on its second week, then fell off the chart in its third week. And he talks about in one interview how it was number one on iTunes, which is cool. But I wonder financially how well this movie is going to do. Um, I just don't, yeah. I don't see how, I don't know. I don't know that much about streaming and home sales. Um, I know that the studio keeps about 80%. Usually the bigger studios do on a, on a VOD rental or EST sale, but I'm not sure how this thing's going to do. Um, I, I think they might write it off because of the pandemic or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think I Korea, like the- that that's what's happening in general, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, that's but that's also the benefit of making a two million dollar movie. Uh, totally, yeah. Is that you? It the write off is not going to hurt you as much, and exposure is maybe the 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 only thing you can hope for uh, with the 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 way the industry is right now. And I mean, I hope we're doing our part because uh, I think that um, this is one of the better surprises of the year for sure. 
Yeah, it's not going to be like the Wonder Woman 1984 write-off, which Oof, uh, HBO Mulan, and Warner yeah. Brothers are, are diving into now. Their accountants are, I imagine. Uh, <laughs> okay, cool. I mean, anything else you want to say? We got a couple of critic stuff, but like, I mean, there's some interesting stuff there. The negative review here from Variety um, talks about how it's a far cry from from Fargo. Uh, kind of calls them sort of aping Coen Brothers, but like not doing a great job with it. Um, he said his, yeah. his debut is much better. Um, I don't actually think his debut is better. I think his debut is much more raw and m- way more of an indie film. It costs like 190k to make. I think um, this feels way. This feels more of an accomplishment to me than his first movie. And so I don't really see what Variety is talking about here. Yeah, um, I did want to one one sentence from that review kind of stood out to me as perhaps another reason why the you know the audience scores are low and maybe some of the Metacritic scores um, didn't hit that big. Uh, it's uh, De Bruge says Wolf actually does that w- thing that we all hope second features won't. It reveals the idiosyncrasies of an unproven director's debut weren't quirks so much as weaknesses. A disappointment for those of us hoping lightning might strike twice for the Thunder Road Helmer. I mean, this is coming from you know I haven't seen Thunder Road, um, so. Who knows what my opinion might be if I see that first um, or an addition. But like, I think one of the things that is it totally when you're talking about idiosyncrasies and quirks, because like that is usually something that gets on my nerves is that if if a filmmaker or even an actor, you know, has a certain quirk or vibe uh, that, you know, piques my interest in their um, debut and then they try to replicate that in a sophomore effort um it'll land flat it'll just grade on me but uh i want to see more of what cummings uh, oh yeah he's a, he's a really exciting person I, I just you know he he's totally into filmmaking he's, he's definitely gonna do his own thing for and has done his own thing and none, none of that's easy to do like i think people get the um conception that being a filmmaker or trying to make art um is if you're super passionate or you're connected but if you're not, it, it's brutal. And like you, the stories that he tells making this stuff, it, it's the stories I've heard from a lot of creative types that I know. Um, it is an uphill climb the entire way. And then you create something and then you just have to do it all over again. Uh, and there's not a lot of financial reward for most of it. Believe me. Um, so in any event, so uh, before we talk about our uh, next week, where does this live in the, the canon of werewolf films? I would, yeah, I was going to mention, uh, I have to say that, uh, at, like I mentioned at the top of the show, I wasn't yearning for another werewolf movie. And I was kind of like, what is Dan having me watch when I press play and yeah. spent my six dollars? Um, but uh, there was there was like a really strong pang of nostalgia I had um, in the, the film's climax at the end uh, where I suddenly realized and remembered how many times I wore out my VHS of an American world in London. Oh yeah. Um, growing up. I could totally and, see you into that movie. Totally. Yeah. Like I was obsessed. I, yeah. and so the John Landis movie is clearly at the top of the list for me personally, but honestly, like maybe it totally depends on rewatches of course, but like I, I, I would sit this as maybe the, the best world movie um, since that. I was going to say that it feels like it probably is because you have the wolf and stuff in 94, which was a big budget movie. Oh, God. Complete so disaster. Like you can't <laughs> even watch it. Um, so this is definitely up there for me, too. So I think, yeah, this is a this is a home run. Going back to my baseball metaphors. This is <laughs> the second at bat home run for Jim Cummings. Yeah. Um, what do we got coming up next week, Chris? 
Oh man, I'm I'm excited to hear your live reaction to this, oh, finding so out for the first time, Dan. God. We are going to dive in to the 15th anniversary of the Wachowskis' V for Vendetta, which oh, is I hate you new so much. to Netflix. I hate you. I so am much. going to go in with an open mind. I have not seen this film since the theaters in 2005, oh, and man. I want to give it another shot. I mean, the graphic novel's brilliant. Alan Moore, I think, is, is. is an absolute um, genius. And regardless of what you think about their filmography at whole, I do think the Wachowskis are extremely they're very amazing important filmmakers. filmmakers. Yeah, they're yes. very important. Their style, what they go for, they're just they're they're doing amazing things. Okay, cool, awesome. Thanks for listening, guys. Do check out um, the Wolf of Snow Hollow. I guess it's still on VOD. I don't think it's going to be. I guess DVD and Blu-ray are probably coming out pretty soon. But it came out in early October, so you can catch it on on any VOD platform that you choose. Uh, That's it. Thanks for listening. This has been Film Trace. Thank you, everybody.